Hello and welcome to the EMJ Health Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. A few years back, a friend told me that I simply had to meet Dr. Annalisa Jenkins because she was one smart, motivated and good lady. And my friend was right. Annalisa Jenkins is a biopharma thought leader with more than 25 years industry experience. With a background in big pharma, she's subsequently built and financed emerging biotech companies pursuing cures for challenging rare diseases. Annalisa obtained her medical degrees from St. Bartholomew's Medical School in London, and she became a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians also here in London. During her education, Annalisa obtained financial support from the Royal Navy, and although initially land-based, she got her sea legs in rather unique and dramatic fashion. We're going to talk about that. Dr. Jenkins worked for Bristol Myers Squibb in a variety of roles, including Executive Medical Director for Australia and New Zealand, VP of the International Medical Division, and Global Senior Vice President. She then transitioned to another pharma giant, Merck Serono, where she served as executive vice president in charge of research and development. These jobs took Annalisa to all parts of the world, exposing her to the many aspects of drug discovery, development, regulatory approvals, clinical deployment, and all the steps involved. And she utilized the knowledge she gained to very good effect. Annalisa is a board member of several growing companies, has exited many with great success, consults to others, and her wisdom has been sought by many groups and organizations, and we're going to discuss some of that. Annalisa likes to keep fit, loves music, deeming herself to be a super fan, should I say, a super fan of both Coldplay and Billie Eilish. So welcome, Dr. Annalisa Jenkins. Thank you, Jonathan. So let's start at the very beginning, Annalisa. I love people's origin stories. Tell us about your journey into medicine and what took you into the pharma world. Oh, well, my journey into medicine um, was really right from an early age. I was very fortunate that I grew up in, um, actually along the South Coast, because my parents were both in the Navy at, at some stage. But I actually had my formative years in Newbury and Berkshire. And my parents from a pretty early age taught me about the importance of community service. And they sent me off twice a week from a pretty young age to uh, help look after young people that were full-time hospitalized due to their rare genetic disorders, which meant they had to have 24 hour round the clock care. And so I started that when I was about 12 years old. And I just remember always feeling happy, at peace and fulfilled in that setting in that caring setting with these young people. And that really started me on my journey um, to medicine. And so I did a little bit of homework and thought, right, I'm gonna aim for medical school. And I ended up uh, going to Bart's in London um, in the early eighties and, and had an amazing time. And we're gonna come on and talk a little bit about how I managed to finance that with the Navy. But I obviously made my way through medical school actually served in the military for nine years and then having been on a global deployment and had a really remarkable time in the Navy decided that perhaps um, being a senior registrar in cardiovascular medicine in the NHS was actually not going to take me in the direction that I really wanted for my professional career and so I answered an ad in the British Medical Journal in the about 1996 from medical advisor role at Bristol Myers Squibb without really knowing what on earth I was signing up for. And it was the first and only job really I've ever applied for. And I landed into Hounslow 
as a medical advisor in cardiovascular medicine in 1996. And that started my journey with Bristol Myers Squibb. You know, it's funny that I've had uh, other guests on who've gone from medical clinical medicine into the pharmaceutical industry, and most of them say the same thing. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> so you mentioned the Royal Navy, uh, Annalisa. Talk to us about your time in the, in the in the Navy and how experiences during that period, particularly during the Gulf conflict of 1991, have shaped you into the woman you are today. Yes, my time in the... British military and obviously specifically in the Royal Navy was really a fundamentally defining moment for me as a young physician and well initially a medical student but also I think probably in the early part of my professional journey. I mean I joined the Navy in 1985 when I was still at medical school. Rather nice as you know as the surgeon sub-lieutenant they paid my way through medical school and I was sent on various deployments to Gibraltar and Hong Kong, et cetera. When I joined up, there were two things that I had to understand in those days. One was that women did not serve at sea. And the second was that if women were to get pregnant, uh, obviously that would be the end of their commission. And of course I signed up, you'll pay my way through medical school, won't you? Yes. And there were many interesting roles in underwater medicine, aviation medicine, I thought would be particularly interesting. So, wind on, I was happily at HMS Rally down in Plymouth, uh, doing the medicals, conducting the medicals for the new entry recruits. Not a particularly onerous medical role, but great fun. Uh, When I received a call in September 1990, uh, Saddam had invaded Kuwait, Margaret Thatcher had been uh, deposed, Uh, John Major was the then Prime Minister, and the US, UK and other nations had deployed uh, in Desert Shield. My then appointer, the person that was responsible for sending me around the world in all my different roles, said to me, you are to pack your bags, uh, go on a course as it related to underwater medicine, nuclear chemical and biological warfare, and deploy to a boat, HMS Herald, in six weeks time in Abu Dhabi. And I said, well, I thought I wasn't going to go to sea. And he said, well, actually, we've just evolved the rules. And so for the first time in September, women will be allowed to spend uh, overnight at sea. So I did deploy as one of the first women in the 500-year history of the Royal Navy to serve overnight at sea, and certainly the first physician. And um, I did. I served for about nine months on HMS Herald as the medic to the minesweeper squadron, deployed up in the far northern part of the Gulf, both at peace, but also during Desert Storm, the conflict, clearing the mines um, undercover most of the time and with a combined military force uh, with the Americans. And it was really, as you can imagine, quite a, a remarkable experience. I came back, served with the Royal Marines, served with down in Cornwall doing air sea rescue. And then um, was transitioned to hospital medicine, and that's where I started my cardiovascular training. I actually left the Marine, uh, left the Royal Navy uh, in 1994. I had had two children by then. That rule had changed along the way as well. But when it came to the end of my short commission, I was a lieutenant commander, and I was really due to do one final ship's tour of duty, surgeon commander on an aircraft carrier to the Asia Pacific region. And with a three-year-old and a one-year-old, 
I really couldn't see how that would be manageable. And of course, therefore, with a heavy heart, I had to leave. You're very interested in the concept of connecting human and financial capital with great ideas and the culture that's then required to, dri to drive that to successful outcomes. There's no shortage of money out there. There's no shortage of great ideas. There's certainly no shortage of people. How does one create an environment that's conducive to that milieu, to a successful outcome? Yeah. So, you know, obviously, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about this now, because as you say, and particularly, I mean, that's one of the reasons actually, you know, having spent many years uh, building and leading teams on a global basis, initially from the East Coast of the US and then from Europe uh, within Switzerland and Germany, um, I came back to the UK about five years ago now because I saw a huge opportunity with the amazing science that is coming out uh, and emerging from our academic institutions, which of course that way above their weight on a global basis. And I, I'm always really passionate about getting to know amazingly talented young people with great ideas obviously with IP, that helps. Um, and then thinking about how they can get access to cap great capital. And then um, I'm, I'm putting that together in a culture, an environment where you have the right people with the right uh, behaviors and attitudes and thoughts um, to make things happen and for it to be successful. But that journey is, is filled with, you know, ups and downs along the way and challenges. And particularly today, when obviously the world in general and the context within which we're doing it on a global geopolitical basis is so risky and ambiguous at the moment. So, um, you know, so, so a couple of things in terms of the people side, let's take the people first. I love to work with young people who are curious and interested way beyond their technical expertise. So I work a lot with drug discovery chemists you know, a lot of physicians, um, clinician researchers. I work increasingly with a lot of data scientists, data analysts, etc. I'm always looking for people with energy and drive and ambition, but also curiosity. I think that's really, really important. The second thing I really look for in, in people is the old days used to be called EQ, but it's really this ability to interact effectively with others. And the word is really collaboration. It's a simple word, it's very complicated, particularly when you're collaborating across geographical boundaries, uh, different parts of the sector. And a good example is how do you get the hard hats in the, um, the technical labs, the data scientists, data analysts, to have constructive collaborative dialogues and, and to construct ideas with the physicians. Those are fundamentally different groups of individuals, but when that happens, great magic happens. So, you know, that's what I'm, again, always looking for. People are always looking to collaborate. I often say those that understand you have two ears and a mouth and you use them in proportion, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you know, got, yeah, yeah, I love that quote as well because, you know, I've learned as I've, I've gotten a lot older and I do talk to the next gen about this or the new gen as they like to be called, that, that you have to look and listen to be effective and to really build great teams and to work out how to, to progress ideas forward, you have to be able to look and listen. So I think that's really, really important. 
the important thing also, of course, is, I mean, obviously you need to have a strategy and a plan and all, all that sort of stuff. But, but the other thing is the culture. And I've said earlier that it's the thoughts, the feelings and behaviours of an organisation. And you and I know, because we have built and led organisations, that it starts at the top and it goes back to this notion of leadership. I used to say in a number of my roles that the leader of an organization has the opportunity to sprinkle the magic dust across the organization. It also has the ability to uh, create a, an organization where people look up and that they see behaviors that they get inspired by every day. They have, it's the, the biggest privilege, I think, in our professional lives to be either the CEO or a senior leader of a, of, a, of a large global team, what a privilege it is to, to hold such a role. So we have to always be clear that the role of leaders is to really set the tone at the top, to model the behaviors uh, that they want to see across the organization and to create that culture over time so that people within the organization, uh, as I've always said, should be able to thrive, survive, and ultimately flourish in the organization. That's the greatest gift I think a leader can give to an organization. Very, very well said. Um, and, and I find myself agreeing with everything. Years ago, Annalisa, I met Michael Melkin, who'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he stubbornly refused to accept his diagnosis and said, oh, it's just a matter of money. You just need to throw money at this. And he started raising money to sponsor research initially through CapCure, uh, his charity, and I know that you serve as board member of Faster Cures, part of Milken's uh, Institute. Can you sort of bring us up to speed about how his mission has grown and the work that they do? Yes. Uh, so obviously, Mike, hugely inspiring uh, leader, and he had very advanced prostate cancer and ultimately, you know, uh, benefited from uh, therapeutics that were actually in clinical research at the time. Um, Put him into remission and ultimately to cure and he obviously had access to capital but not just to capital he had access to people and leaders and he put them together and he founded the prostate cancer foundation and not just now in prostate cancer but way beyond set about thinking about how the non-profit sector could be part of the dialogue and over the years um, has really led the way in thinking about um, how for the for, for scientific enterprise and the development of innovations and new therapeutics, new modalities, you know, what is the policy and regulatory environment that we need to foster to accelerate cures for patients? How can we bring the voice of the patient to bear in that process? And how can we bring the patient advocate and patient foundations and associations to the table so that ultimately we start with the patient need and medical need in, in sight from day one, and then we can match capital investment in the right regulatory environment, um, obviously, to, to, to bring things forward. And, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of regulatory innovations actually in regulatory science. I used to sit on the science and policy board of FDA, uh, looking at, at pathways to accelerate 
drug development and bringing really disruptive uh, innovations for people living with devastating disorders to healthcare systems. Thinking about how um, real world data, that's a very good example recently, from patient groups can be embedded into drug development process so that it can improve the speed and efficiency with which these programs can, can move through the system. Um, bringing philanthropists to the table, particularly around very rare diseases where there isn't always a robust uh, private sector model and investment when I'm thinking about very rare diseases. Or now, of course, in areas such as infectious disease, where some of the market incentives haven't necessarily been there. So Mike Milken and Faster Cures have been thinking for, for a number of years, actually, about how do you put financial incentives into a marketplace to bring forward innovations in drugs, medicines, devices, manufacturing for diseases that are very rare, but also for diseases that impact people in resource poor settings, perhaps in the southern hemisphere. Um, and then you enable access. So I think, you know, this has been a hugely productive, inspiring journey uh, with Milken over the years, but has really, I think, set the exemplar for other organizations to really understand that it's really a collaboration between the private sector, the public sector, and the charitable or nonprofit sector that needs to be highly effective if one wants to make sure that you really do enable bench to bedside that's what it's all about Jonathan it's really the bench to bedside um, journey and we haven't got it right yet by the way I mean I still get frustrated sometimes when I think about some of the challenges we have in let me just say validating biomarkers or rating scales or validating some of the manufacturing um, assays I get so frustrated because sometimes it can set you back two or three years and yet we know patients are waiting with these devastating diseases and we just haven't been able to allow regulatory science or some aspect of our science along the way, particularly in manufacturing, to keep up with other aspects of the innovation, you know, to make it all come together at the same time. Yeah. And what you, you so you've mentioned regulatory. I'd like to come on to that because that is very often a huge barrier. And FDA, the American Food and Drug Administration, oversees the approval and clearance of medical devices and drugs and so on for America. Uh, I want you to comment on a couple of things. Number one, uh, the fact that I believe Switzerland has just decided, yeah, I know we're a nation state, but you know we're not going to mess around duplicating. We're going to use FDA. We're going to accept FDA. That's number one. And number two, I know that you're a, a member of their science advisory board. How do people like you with You've got encyclopedic medical and industry knowledge, support FDA to help them make better and hopefully faster decisions to bring, you know, much needed diagnostics and treatments to the patients who need them, as you so eloquently said. Yes. So actually, I just recently, having served two terms um, on the science and policy board, just stepped down. It was an interesting journey. I will say that... Um, of course, the FDA is a government institution funded by the government and all its employees are public servants. So one of the biggest challenges over the years that uh, we've recognized is the workforce issue uh, within FDA. It's a massive organization. It has a huge turnover and it often has a number of vacancies really just um, 
you know, obviously made worse, like many organizations, by the recent uh, COVID pandemic that we've been living through. So they do have a workforce challenge. They have a relatively young, inexperienced workforce due to the turnover. So the first thing that we really need to pay attention to with all of our regulatory authorities on a global basis is making sure we have the right people with the right skill set and the right frame of mind, obviously, as gatekeepers in the system. The second point, which is really important, is that you know, in the US, um, essentially the FDA is, is founded upon and governed according to federal regulation. So it's very regulation based. It's not a very flexible, pragmatic system, unlike other regulatory authorities uh, around the world, Europe being one. So it's a just different culture. So having people in organizations that know how to navigate through that is really, really important. One of the biggest challenges of any agency, frankly, is to keep up with the speed of science. In fact, the agency, US agency put out a paper um, a number of years ago, about five years ago now, identifying this challenge, which was how to help regulatory science go at the speed of science and recognize some of the biggest barriers that needed to be addressed as it was in those days in the use of big data, in the uh, development of biomarkers, um, evolution of biomarkers, in, in this whole field of precision medicine, in the field of patient-centric, individualized, personalized care, the recognition that gene therapy and cell therapies, and now we've obviously got the evolution into CRISPR, genetic medicine, mRNA and all these areas are just traveling so fast. How does an agency keep up with its own scientific rigor and its education? That's been a huge challenge. So, so I think these are big thorny issues and the Science and Policy Board was charged with helping the agency to keep ahead of those trends, to foresee those trends. I will tell you, of course, though, that the agency, like many organizations, has lived through a number of sequential leaders at the top. That hasn't helped the organization over time. Obviously, Rob Califf today, I have huge respect for and have worked with him on and off over the years in a number of iterations. Um, I do think he's a great leader. However, as I've said, there are continuing challenges. What does that mean? What it means is a number of companies that I work with um, on a global basis used to, in the old days, always go to the US first, travel through the FDA, and then go outside. Nowadays, organizations are thinking very carefully about where they go to conduct their first in human or early phase development. And often that might see them now going to the UK, coming to the UK, going into Australia for phase one oncology, you know, traveling to Europe, and then working back to the FDA if they feel that that might enable a little bit their development timelines. But, you know, knowing that the rigor of regulatory science is upheld in all of these jurisdictions, and we're starting to see some really interesting new agencies emerge on a global basis uh, with very robust science, Singapore being one of them. I will tell you that the MHRA has done a tremendous job in the last few years of certainly difficult, obviously, separation post-Brexit, but under great leadership has established itself as one of the most productive, collaborative agencies now for companies to interact with. Yeah. So watch the space, basically. So another of your many roles, you're a non-executive director of uh, Genomics England. 
Can you mm. please explain their mission and talk a bit about the 100,000 Genomes Project and what actionable findings have resulted for folks who aren't, um, you know, our audience are largely medical, but we have a lot of non-medical people who listen as well. So it, yeah. it'd be great if you could uh, precede that for us. Yeah, well, the genomics, the 100,000 Genomes Project would, of course, a vision um, of uh, David Cameron, many of you know, um, who um, had one of his children who suffered from a rare genetic disorder. Um, and he essentially established this, I guess, mission to sequence the genomes of 100,000 uh, people in the UK, either living with a rare disease uh, or cancer. And uh, that was a number of years ago, actually, it was about 10, 12 years ago now. So that was the 100,000 project. That was successfully achieved a few years ago and many lessons along the way. And really phase two of that was to say, well, okay, we've established this platform by which we can work collaboratively with the NHS and within the NHS to uh, conduct or apply whole genome, you know, the whole genome sequencing um, and use that to improve diagnosis. And in some cases, the application of personalized medicine uh, to people, uh, as I said, living with rare genetic disorders or cancer, certain forms of cancer. So on the back of that, Genomics England, which is an arm's length uh, public body funded by the government as its unique and only shareholder, um, was established. And really it serves um, three purposes. Number one is that it provides the whole genome sequencing service to the NHS through a very strong collaborative partnership with the genomic centers that we have, centers of excellence across the NHS um, and Illumina that um, provides the sequencing service. Um, so that's the number one, it provides that, that service and technology platform. Number two, is that it provides a research environment. So you can imagine huge amounts of data, both genomic sequencing data, but also linked with data of many other biochemical markers uh, from blood and other tissues, uh, data from imaging, x-rays, MRI, CT scans, and then clinical records from patients. So putting all that together into a trusted and secure research environment that the Genomics England has built, which anonymizes data and allows this data to be ethically and safely um, shared with researchers who can come in and conduct research in the hope that they can uncover um, new opportunities for the discovery of new medicines. So that's the second thing. And then thirdly, I think that um, Genomics England has become a very important test bed and research bed for special projects. We're currently undertaking three special projects supported by the government in collaboration with the NHS. One is called Cancer 2.0. How do we expand our ability to sequence both tumors and individuals and to learn more about cancers and their genetic makeup so that we can discover pathways potentially for new drugs, but also to apply the drugs in a much more personalized way. The second is called newborn screening, which is really how do we understand the benef potential benefit of sequencing uh, newborns uh, for diseases that we are already aware of so that we can catch them early and where we know that there are interventions, whether that be a gene therapy or dietary modification or other care pathways 
um, to um, give them the best chance of survival and success. And the third project is around diversity. How do we ensure that we uh, have databases uh, across the UK that truly represent the rich diversity of populations uh, that we have in our country so that all of our uh, discoveries, therapies, clinical care pathways aren't just directed at white uh, Caucasian, generally males actually, because females generally, as we know, have been under, traditionally underrepresented in lots of clinical trials. So we're doing a, a diversity project where we're looking to screen a population from a very diverse population. So that's a good example of really special programs. Uh, so it's sort of like a really a, an engine of research. So that's, it's a rather large organization, many collaborations has gonna have global impact uh, with, its, uh, with its data sets and its research environment and leading the way I think on a global basis and really lies at the center of the UK's now gen genomic strategy which has a number of pillars to it, gel being one of them. So very, very exciting. Genetic medicine largely going to reshape the way we think about understanding risk, understanding early diagnosis, how we can intervene earlier as well. And then obviously also unpack new targets and pathways for drug discovery and new therapeutics. Yeah, it's um, I guess it's one of the indications of things you can do when you've got an integrated uh, health service and, you know, protocol driven medicine to some degree. Uh, I, know I, I was astonished whilst practicing in the United States that I would see patients with a colon cancer and no one would talk to them about screening their family. I mean, just some yes. very fundamental, simple things because it's so fragmented. So again, I think that's another one. Watch this space. We'll have to have you back on to talk more about it. Unfortunately, we're getting towards the end, Annalisa, and I like to give every guest the chance to tell our audience what they would do with three wishes to advance the health of the globe. What would Dr. Annalisa Jenkins' wishes be? Okay. Uh, the first thing I would do is that I would uh, ensure, goes back to what we've just talked about, that uh, we have broad representation of women on a global basis in our clinical trials. And as we think about how we want to uh, develop new innovations and medicines to bring to the world, because we need appropriate representation um, in innovation, number one. Number two, I would wish that one day all the leaders in our sector, biotech, pharma, across the life sciences, could wake up and reflect on how they could ensure safe and appropriate access on a global basis to every single medicine that they develop so that everybody in the world who might benefit from a medicine could get access to that medicine. And I think third, what I would want is that uh, in our healthcare systems globally, that, um, that, that the countries that have so much and benefit from so much um, as it relates to economic prosperity could, could see their way to working through how they could reach a handout and ensure whether that be um, on the supply of medicines 
Um, actually, to be honest, when we talk about health on the supply of water and food yeah. and just the basics, yeah. Yeah. how they could reach out and put their hands in their pockets um, to a greater extent to ensure that there is essentially a quality of access as a human right to health, clean water, food and security for people on a global basis. We need to do more. 100% agree with everything you've said. And maybe with you in a leadership role, maybe you need to look at another leadership role. <laughs> uh, I believe the, the you'd have to change address. I think it's number 10 Downing Street. Um, <laughs> Dr. Annalisa Jenkins, you are a very, very, very busy person. So thanks for taking the time out to speak to us for your inquiring mind and everything you're doing to advance science and the business of science. Thank you, Jonathan. Absolute pleasure being with you today. So, folks, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and will subscribe for our weekly episodes, our weekly shows. Please tell your friends, like us on social media. You know the score. Until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.